Hello, my beautiful audience, and welcome to a very, very special episode of Pass the Time Podcast. This isn't like your regular, typical Pass the Time Podcast episode. This is more of a nostalgic episode. It's because you know what we're going to do? We're going to look back on the best of our episodes. So we're looking at the best of episodes 1 through 10. I chose uh, five or six stories, and we're just going to... I'm replaying them. I changed the music for some of them because... Oh, God, like my editing back then, it wasn't so great. And I think the music I have now is a little better than some of the terrible stuff I've laid behind the background of some of the other creepypastas. So hopefully this will be a new experience, but also a little bit of a nostalgic experience for you. And I just hope you guys enjoy it. So there's not going to be any horror fix this episode, but I will do a rate and review at the very end. But let's get into it, shall we? The very first episode that we're going to be re-listening to, re-experiencing, is Bedtime by Michael Whitehouse. So this is the first creepypasta I had actually ever read, and that's probably why it has a special place in my heart. But it's really just like a terrifying story, because as a kid, I was kind of terrified of the corner of my bed kind of near the wall there, that area. And if I would have read the story as a child, I doubt I would have ever slept again. So some of the things I didn't like about my original recording of this episode were just some of the words, I stumbled over them, and I didn't really portray as much emotion as I do in a lot of the stories as I read now, but the music levels were also a little too high, and I'm at least fixing that part of it. So hopefully you guys enjoy the reimagining of my initial story, but yeah, here it is. This is Bedtime by Michael Whitehouse. Bedtime is supposed to be a happy event for a tired child. For me, it was terrifying. While some children might complain about being put to bed before they finish their favorite movie or playing their favorite game, when I was a child, nighttime was something to truly fear. Sometimes in the back of my mind, it still is. As someone who trained in the sciences, I cannot prove that what happened to me is objectively real. I can swear that what I experienced was genuine horror. A fear which in my life, I'm glad to say, has never been equaled. I will relate it to you now as best I can. Make of it what you will, but I'll be glad just to get it off my chest. I can't remember exactly when it started, but my apprehension towards falling asleep seemed to correspond with being moved into my own room. I was eight years old at the time, and until then I shared a room, quite happily, with my older brother. As is perfectly understandable for a boy five years my senior, my brother eventually wished for a room of his own, and as a result, I was given a room at the back of the house. It was a small, narrow, yet oddly elongated room, large enough for a bed and a couple of dressers, but not much else. I couldn't really complain because even at that age, I understood that we did not have a large house, and I had no real cause to be disappointed, as my family was both loving and caring. It was a happy childhood during the day. A solitary window looked onto our back garden, nothing out of the ordinary, but even during the day, the light which crept into the room seemed hesitant. As my brother was given a new bed, I was given the bunk beds that we used to share. While I was upset about sleeping on my own, I was excited at the thought of being able to sleep in the top bunk, which seemed far more adventurous to me. From the very first night, I remember a strange feeling of unease creeping slowly from the back of my mind. I lay on the top bunk, staring down at my action figures and cars strewn across the green-blue carpet. As imaginary battles and adventures took place between the toys on the floor, I couldn't help but feel my eyes were being slowly drawn towards the bottom bunk, as if something was moving in the corner of my eye, something which not wished to be seen. 
The bunk was empty, impeccably made with a dark blue blanket tucked in neatly, partially covering two rather bland white pillows. I didn't think anything of it at the time. I was a child, and the noise slipping under my door from my parents' television bathed me in a warm sense of safety and well-being. I fell asleep. When you awaken from a deep sleep to something moving or stirring, it can take a few moments for you to truly understand what's happening. The fog of sleep hangs over your eyes and ears, even when lucid. Something was moving, there was no doubt about that. At first I wasn't sure what it was. Everything was dark, almost pitch black. But there was enough light creeping in from outside to outline the narrowly suffocating room. Two thoughts appeared in my mind, almost simultaneously. The first was that my parents were in bed, because the rest of the house lay both in darkness and silence. The second thought turned to the noise, a noise which had obviously woken me. As the last cobwebs of sleep withered from my mind, the noise took on a more familiar form. Sometimes the simplest of sounds can be the most unnerving. A cold wind whistling through a tree outside, a neighbor's footsteps uncomfortably close, or in this case, the simplest sound being the bedsheets rustling in the dark. That was it, bedsheets rustling in the dark, as if some disturbed sleeper was attempting to get all too comfortable in the bottom bunk. I lay there in disbelief, thinking that the noise was either my imagination or perhaps just my pet cat finding somewhere comfortable to spend the night. It was then that I noticed my door, shut, just as it had been when I went to sleep. Perhaps my mom had come to check on me, and the cat snuck into my room then. Yes, that must have been it. I turned to face the wall, closing my eyes, in the vain hope that I could fall back to sleep. As I moved, the rustling noise from underneath me ceased. I thought that I must have disturbed my cat, but quickly I realized that the visitor in the bottom bunk was much less mundane than my pet trying to sleep, and much more sinister. As if alerted to, and disgruntled by my presence, the disturbed sleeper began to toss and turn violently, like a child having a tantrum in their bed. I could hear the sheets twist and turn with increasing ferocity. Fear then gripped me, not like the subtle sense of unease I had experienced earlier, but now potent and terrifying. My heart raced as my eyes panicked, scanning the almost impenetrable darkness. I let out a cry. As most young boys do, I instinctively shouted for my mother. I could hear something stir on the other side of the house, but as I began to breathe a sigh of relief that my parents were coming to save me, the bunk bed shook violently, as if gripped by an earthquake, scraping against the wall. I could hear the sheets below me thrashing around as if tormented by malice. I did not want to jump down to safety as I feared the thing in the bottom bunk would reach out and grab me, pulling me into the darkness, so I stayed there, white knuckles clenching my own blanket, like a shroud of protection. The wait seemed like an eternity. The door finally and thankfully burst open, and I lay bathed in the light, while the bottom bunk, the resting place of my unwanted visitor, lay empty and peaceful. I cried and my mother consoled me. Tears of fear followed by relief streamed down my face. Yet through all of the horror and relief, I did not tell her why I was so upset. I cannot explain it, but it was as though whatever had been in the dark would return if I even so much spoke of it, or even uttered a single syllable of its existence. Whether that was the truth, I do not know. But as a child, I felt that as if the unseen menace remained close, listening. My mother lay in the empty bunk, promising to stay there until morning. Eventually, my anxiety diminished, tiredness pushed me back towards sleep, but I remained restless, waking several times momentarily to the sound of rustling bedsheets. I remember the next day wanting to go anywhere, be anywhere, but in the narrow suffocating room. It was a Saturday and I played outside with my friends. Although our house was not large, we were lucky to have a long sloping garden in the back. 
We played in there often, as much of it was overgrown and could hide in the bushes, climb in the huge sycamore tree that towered above everything else, and easily imagine ourselves in the throes of a grand adventure, in some untamed, exotic land. As fun as it all was, occasionally my eye would turn to the small window. Ordinary, slight, and innocuous. But for me, that thin boundary was a looking glass into a strange, cold pocket of dread. Outside, the lush green surroundings of our garden, filled with the smiling faces of friends, could not extinguish the creeping feeling crawling its way up my spine, each hair standing on end. The feeling of something in that room, watching me play, waiting for the night when I would be alone, eagerly filled with hate. It may sound strange to you, but by the time my parents ushered me back into that room for the night, I said nothing. I didn't protest. I didn't even make an excuse to why I couldn't sleep there. I simply and sullenly walked into that room climbed the few steps into my top bunk, and waited. As an adult, I would be telling everyone about my experience, but even at that age, I found it silly to be talking about something which I really had no evidence for. I would be lying. However, if I said this was my primary reason, I still felt that the thing would be enraged if I so much spoke of it. It's funny how certain words can remain hidden from your mind, no matter how blatant or obvious they are. One word came to me the second night lying there in the darkness alone, frightened aware of a rotting change in the atmosphere, a thickening of air, as if something had been displaced. As I heard the first casual twists of the bedsheets below, the first anxious increase of my heartbeat at the realization that something was once again in the bottom bunk, that word, a word which had been sent into exile, filtered up through my consciousness, breaking free of all repression, gasping for air, screaming, etching, and carving itself into my mind. Ghost. As this thought came to me, I noticed my unwelcome visitor had ceased moving. The bedsheets lay calm and dormant, but they had been replaced by something far more hideous. A slow, rhythmic, rasping breath heaved and escaped from the thing below. I could imagine its chest rising and falling with each sordid, wheezing, and garbled breath. I shuddered and hoped beyond all hope that it would just leave me alone. The house lay as it did the previous night in a thick blanket of darkness. Silence prevailed. Silence prevailed, all but for the perverted breath of my as-yet-unseen bunkmate. I lay there terrified. I just wanted this thing to go, to leave me alone. What did it want? Then something unmistakably chilling transpired. It moved. It moved in a different way than the time before. When it threw itself around in the bottom bunk, it seemed unrestrained, without purpose, almost animalistic. This movement, however, was driven by awareness, with purpose, with a goal in mind. For that thing laying there in the darkness, that thing which seemed intent on terrorizing a young boy, calmly and nonchalantly sat up. Its labored breathing had become louder, as now only a mattress and a few flimsy wooden slates separated my body from the unearthly breath below. I lay there, my eyes filled with tears, a fear which mere words cannot relate to you or anyone else coursed through my veins. I would not have believed that this fear could have been heightened, but I was so wrong. I imagined what this thing would look like, sitting there, listening from below my mattress, hoping to catch the slightest hint that I was awake. Imagination then turned to an unnerving reality. It began to touch the wooden slates which my mattress sat on. It seemed to caress them carefully, running what I imagined to be fingers and hands across the wooden surface. Then with great force, it prodded angrily between two slates into the mattress. Even through the padding, it felt as though someone had viciously stuck their fingers into my side. I let out an almighty cry, and the wheezing, shaking, and moving thing in the bunk below replied in kind by violently vibrating the bunk as it had done the night before. 
Small flakes of paint powdered onto my blanket from the wall as the frame of the bed scraped along it, backwards and forwards. Once again I was bathed in light and there stood my mother, loving, caring as she always was, with a comforting hug and calming words which eventually subdued my hysteria. Of course she asked what was wrong, but I could not say, I dared not say. I simply said one word over and over again, nightmare. This pattern of events continued for weeks, if not months. Night after night I would awaken to the sound of rustling sheets. Each time I would scream so as not to provide the abomination with time to prod me and feel me. With each cry the bed would shake violently, stopping with the arrival of my mother, who would spend the rest of the night in the bottom bunk, seemingly unaware of the sinister force torturing her son nightly. Along the way, I managed to feign illnesses a few times and come up with other less than truthful reasons for sleeping in my parents' bed. But more often than not, I would be alone for the first few hours of each night in that place, the room where the light from outside did not sit right, alone with that thing. With time, you can become desensitized to almost anything, no matter how horrific. I had come to realize that, for whatever reason, this thing could not harm me when my mother was present. I am sure that the same would have been said for my father, but as loving as he was, waking him from his sleep was almost impossible. After a few months, I had grown accustomed to my nightly visitor. Do not mistake this for some unearthly friendship. I detested the thing. I still feared it greatly, as I could almost sense its desires and its personality, if you could call it that. One filled with a perverted and twisted hatred, yet longing for me, of perhaps all things. My greatest fears were realized in winter. The days grew short, and the longer nights merely provided this wretch with more opportunities. It was a difficult time for my family. My grandmother, a woefully kind and gentle woman, had deteriorated greatly since the death of my grandfather. My mother was trying her best to keep her in the community as long as possible. However, dementia is a cruel and degenerative illness, robbing a person of their memories one day at a time. Soon she recognized none of us, and it became clear that she would need to be moved from her house to a nursing home. Before she could be moved, my grandmother had a particularly difficult few nights, and my mother decided that she would stay with her. As much as I loved my grandmother and felt nothing but anguish at her illness, to this day I feel guilty that my first thoughts were not of her, but of what my nightly visitor may do should it become aware of my mother's absence. Her presence being the only thing which I was sure was protecting me from the full horror of this thing's reach. I rushed home from school that day and immediately wretched the bedsheets and mattress from the lower bunk, removing all the slates and placing an old desk, a chest of drawers, and some chairs which we kept in a cupboard where the bottom bunk used to be. I told my father I was making an office, which he found adorable, but I would be damned if I'd give that thing a place to sleep for one more night. As darkness approached, I lay there knowing my mother was not in the house. I did not know what to do. My only impulse was to sneak into her jewelry box and take a small family crucifix, which I had seen there before. While my family were not very religious, at that age I still believed in God and hoped that somehow this would protect me. Although fearful and anxious, while gripping the crucifix under my pillow tightly in one hand, sleep eventually came as I drifted off into a dream. I hoped that I would awaken in the morning without incidents. Unfortunately, that night was the most terrifying of all. I woke gradually. The room was once again dark. As my eyes adjusted, I could gradually make out the window and the door, and then the walls and some toys on a shelf, and even to this day I shudder to think of it, for there was no noise, no rustling of sheets, no movement at all. The room was lifeless, lifeless yet not empty. The nightly visitor, that unwelcome wheezing, hate-filled thing which had terrorized me night after night, was not in the bottom bunk. It was in my bed. I opened my mouth to scream, but nothing came out. 
Utter terror had shaken the very sound from my voice. I could not scream. I did not want to let it know I was awake. I had not yet seen it. I could only feel it. It was obscured under my blanket. I could see its outline, and I could feel its presence, but I dared not to look. The weight of it pressed down on top of me, a sensation I will never forget. When I say that hours passed, I'm not exaggerating. Laying there motionless in the darkness, I was every bit a scared and frightened little boy. If it had been during the summer months, it would have been light by then, but the grasp of winter is long and unrelenting, and I knew it would be hours before sunrise, a sunrise which I yearned for. I was a timid child by nature, but I reached a breaking point, a moment where I could wait no more, where I could survive under this intimately deviant abomination no longer. Fear can sometimes wear you out. It can make you threadbare, a shell of nerves leaving only the slightest trace of you behind. I had to get out of that bed. Then I remembered, the crucifix. My hand still lay underneath the pillow, but it was empty. I slowly moved my wrist around to find it, minimizing as best as I could the sound and vibrations it caused. But it could not be found. I had either knocked it off the top bunk, or it had, I could not even bear to think of it, had been taken from my hand. Without the crucifix, I lost any sense of hope. Even at such a young age, you can be acutely aware of what death is, and intensely frightened of it. I knew I was going to die if I laid there in that bed, dormant, passive, doing nothing. I had to leave that room. But how? Should I leap from my bed and hope that I make it to the door? What if it's faster than me? Or should I slowly slip out of that top bunk, hoping not to disturb my uncanny bedfellow? Realizing that it had not stirred when I moved trying to find the crucifix, I began to have the strangest thoughts. What if it was asleep? It hadn't so much as breathed since I had woken up. Perhaps it was resting, believing that it had finally got to me, that I was finally in its grasp. Or perhaps it was toying with me. After all, it had been doing just that for countless nights. And now with me under it, pinned up against my mattress with no mother to protect me, maybe it was holding off, savoring its victory until the last possible moment like a wild animal savoring its prey. I tried to breathe as shallowly as possible, and mustering every ounce of courage I could, I reached over slowly with my right hand and began to peel the blankets off of me. What I found under those covers almost stopped my heart. I did not see it, but as my hand moved the blanket, it brushed against something. Something smooth and cold. Something which felt unmistakably like a gaunt hand. I held my breath in terror as I was sure it must known that I was awake. Nothing. It did not stir. It felt dead. After a few moments, I placed my hand carefully further down the blanket and felt a thin, poorly formed forearm. My confidence and almost twisted sense of curiosity grew as I moved down further to the disproportionately larger bicep muscle. The arm was outstretched lying across my chest, with the hand resting on my left shoulder as if it had grabbed me in my sleep. I realized that I would have to move this cadaverous appendage if I ever so much as hoped to escape its grasp. For some reason, the feeling of torn, ragged clothing on the shoulder of this nighttime invader stopped me in my tracks. Fear once again swelled in my stomach and in my chest as I recoiled my hand in disgust at the touch of straggled, oily hair. I could not bring myself to touch its face, although I wondered to this very day what it would have felt like. Dear God, it moved. It moved! It was subtle, but its grip on my shoulder and across my body strengthened. No tears came, but God how I wanted to cry. As its hand and arm slowly coiled around me, my right leg brushed along the cool wall which my bed lay against. Of all that happened to me in that room, this was the strangest. I realized that this clutching, rancid thing which drew great delight from violating a young boy's bed was not entirely on top of me. 
It was sticking out from the wall like a spider striking from its lair. Suddenly its grip moved from a slow tightening to a sudden squeeze. It pulled and clawed at my clothes as if frightened that the opportunity would soon pass. I fought against it, but its emaciated arm was too strong for me. Its head rose up writhing and contorting under the blanket. I now realized where it was taking me. Into the wall. I fought for my dear life. I cried and suddenly my voice returned to me, yelling, screaming, but no one came. Then I realized why it was so eager to suddenly strike. Why this thing had to have me now. Through my window, that window which seemed to represent so much malice from outside, streaked hope, the first rays of sunshine. I struggled further knowing that if I could just hold on, it would soon be gone. As I fought for my life, the unearthly parasite shifted, slowly pulling itself up my chest, its head now poking out from under the blanket, wheezing, coughing, rasping. I do not remember its features, I simply remember its breath against my face, foul and cold as ice. As the sun broke over the horizon, the dark place, that suffocating room of contempt, was washed, bathed in sunlight. I passed out as its scrawny fingers encircled my neck, squeezing the very life from me. I awoke to my father offering to make me some breakfast. A wonderful sight indeed. I had survived the most horrible experience of my life until then, and now. I moved the bed away from the wall, leaving behind the furniture I had believed would stop that thing from taking a bed. Little did I think it would try to take mine, and me. Weeks passed without incidents, yet on one cold, frostbitten night, I awoke to the sound of the furniture where the bunk beds used to be, vibrating violently. In a moment it passed. I lay there sure I could hear a distant wheezing coming from deep within the wall, finally fading into the distance. I've never told anyone this story before. To this day, I still break out into a cold sweat at the sound of bedsheets rustling in the night, or a wheeze brought on by the common cold and I certainly never sleep with my bed against the wall. Call it superstition if you will, but as I said, I cannot discount conventional explanations such as sleep paralysis, hallucination, or that of an overactive imagination. But what I can say is this. The following year I was given a larger room on the other side of the house, and my parents took that strangely suffocating, elongated place as their bedroom. They said they didn't need a large room, just one big enough for the bed and a few other things. They lasted 10 days. We moved on the 11th. Now, wasn't that terrifying? But you know what? Let's not dilly-dally. Let's get into the next story. This is a very popular one. Uh, this creepypasta is called Dead Bart. This was actually the first episode I ever had to re-record an intro. I was actually listening to the recording, the first recording uh, of the show, and I was like, God, that was awful. So I had to actually go back, re-record the intro, but I found out I still have the shitty intro I recorded, so I'm going to play that for you right now. This creepypasta is about a supposedly lost episode of The Simpsons, which Matt Groening dreads to talk about. But why? Well, we're about to find out, so here we go. Oh god, that was terrible. But you know what? The re-recorded intro I found was a little bit better, so I included that so you can compare. Here's Dead Bart with the re-recorded intro. Are you prepared to have nightmares, audience? Are you prepared to have your fond memories of The Simpsons be destroyed in an instant? Because if you're too afraid, then turn this off now. No one will blame you, except for me. And you don't want to be on my bad side. So here we go with Dead Bart on Past the Time Podcast. You know how Fox has a weird way of counting Simpsons episodes? 
They refused to count a couple of them, making the amount of episodes inconsistent. The reason for this is a lost episode from season 1. Finding details about this missing episode is difficult. No one who was working on the show at the time likes to talk about it. From what has been pieced together, the lost episode was written entirely by Matt Groening. During the production of the first season, Matt started to act strangely. He was very quiet, seemed nervous and morbid. Mentioning this to anyone who is present results in them getting very angry and forbidding you to ever mention it to Matt. The episode's production number was 7G44. The title was Dead Bart. In addition to getting angry, asking anyone who is on the show about this will cause them to do everything they can to stop you from directly communicating with Matt Groening. But at a fan event, I managed to follow him after he spoke to the crowd, and eventually had the chance to talk to him alone as he was leaving the building. He didn't seem upset that I had followed him. He probably expected a typical encounter with an obsessed fan. When I mentioned the lost episode though, all the color drained from his face and he started trembling. When I asked him if he could tell me any details, he sounded like he was on the verge of tears. He grabbed a piece of paper, wrote something on it, and handed it to me. He begged me to never mention the episode ever again. The piece of paper had a website on it. I would rather not say what it was for reasons you'll see in a second. I entered the address into my browser, and I came to a site that was completely black except for a line of yellow text, a download link. I clicked on it, and a file started downloading. Once the file was downloaded, my computer went crazy. It was the worst virus I'd ever seen. System restore didn't work. The entire computer had to be rebooted. Before doing this, though, I copied the file onto a CD. I tried to open it on my now-empty computer. As I suspected, there was an episode of The Simpsons on it. The episode started off like any other, but it had very poor quality animation. If you've seen the original animation for some enchanted evening, it was similar to that, but less stable. The first act was fairly normal, but the way characters acted was a little off. Homer seemed angrier, Marge seemed depressed, Lisa seemed anxious, and Bart seemed to have a genuine anger and hatred for his parents. The episode was about the Simpsons going on a plane trip. Near the end of the first act, the plane was taking off. Bart was fooling around as you'd expect. However, as the plane was about 50 feet off the ground, Bart broke a window on the plane and was sucked out. At the beginning of the series, Matt had an idea that the animated style of The Simpsons would represent life, and that death turned things more realistic. This was used in this episode. The picture of Bart's corpse was barely recognizable. They took full advantage of not having to move, and made an almost photorealistic drawing of his dead body. Act 1 ended with a shot of Bart's corpse. When Act 2 started, Homer, Marge, and Lisa were sitting at their table crying. The crying went on and on, it got more pained and sounded more realistic, better acting than you'd think possible. The animation started to decay even more as they cried, and you could hear murmuring in the background. This crying went on for all of Act 2. Act 3 opened with a title card saying one year had passed. Homer, Marge, and Lisa were skeletally thin and still sitting at the table. There was no sign of Maggie or the pets. They decided to visit Bart's grave. Springfield was completely deserted, and as they walked to the cemetery, the houses became more and more decrepit. They all looked abandoned. When they got to the grave, Bart's body was just lying in front of his tombstone, looking like it did at the end of Act 1. The family started crying again. Eventually they stopped, and just stared at Bart's body. The camera zoomed in on Homer's face. According to summaries, Homer tells a joke at this part, but it isn't audible in the version I saw. You can't tell what Homer's saying. The view zoomed out as the episode came to a close. 
The tombstones in the background had names of every Simpsons guest star on them. Some that no one had heard of in 1989. Some that haven't been on the show yet. And all of them had death dates on them. For guests who died since, like Michael Jackson and George Harrison, the dates were when they would die. You can try to use the tombstones to predict the death of living Simpsons guest stars, but there's something odd about most of the ones who haven't died yet. All of their deaths are listed as the same date. So that was Dead Bart, one of my personal favorite creepypastas. Really anything to do with pop culture or The Simpsons is always a great creepypasta, great story. Especially since I love Treehouse of Horror so much. I mean, and having a creepypasta that kind of matches up with it, it's pretty cool. Pretty cool. But I love that story. Let's move on to the next one. This is Restraint by Delosion, written by Delosion, and it's actually the only creepypasta on this best of show that I myself personally did not read. So it's read by Jay-Z. If you've been listening since the inception of the entire program, then you know Jay-Z. He was uh, kind of with me for the first episodes, really. Haven't had him on in a long time, but I guess uh, we can look back fondly on his voice and on a very creepy vampire-related creepypasta. Here it is. Boobies. I know, little one, I know. You long to hunt, to kill. You hunger for hot blood and torn flesh. I know how long it's been, but hush just a little longer, my child. Yes, baby, I can see that he doesn't know we're here. But you still need to be quiet for a bit. It's all about self-control, sweetling. You have to be able to control yourself. You've got to learn some restraint. I know how delicious he smells, dear. I know. Shh, flower, he hears you. Look, see how he turns from his screen? I know he's not looking at us, baby, but he's sensing you all the same. Humans can do that if you don't move with care. Mostly they'll ignore the sensation or dismiss it as paranoia. But he had to be still. There, look, he settled again. So much easier this way. No, little one, it wouldn't be more fun to hunt him down. Remember the last time I let you do that? The girl almost got away. I was cleaning up for hours after that one. No, it's much better to wait for the dark, wait for the guard to drop, and then. Don't fret, sweet pea. Your brothers and sisters were just like you at the start. They'll get better. More controlled. You just need more practice. That's why mother's here, to help you learn. See how his eyelids droop? Not long now. There we go. He shut the box down. Lights off. Always wait for the lights off, baby. It's much more fun in the dark. Just listen to him breathe. Oh, little one. I won't make you wait anymore. Go on. Have your fun. We'll try again with the next one. So that was Restraint, read by Jay-Z. And are you creeped out? I'm creeped out. And I've heard this story many times. But let's get on to the next two-part, actually, uh, creepypastas. I chose two creepypastas from, uh, I think it was episode 9? It was uh, actually originally a request show. One of the stories was requested by Dan, and one was by Ross. So 
quick shout out to them. So Dan requested uh, Candle Cove and Ross requested a knock at the window. These are two of my favorite stories. They're just both terrifying. They're both scary stories and I can listen to them a hundred times and still be frightened. So here we go. I'm just going to play them back to back. Candle Cove first and then a knock at the window. Records from the Television Nostalgia Forum, Candle Cove. From Skyshale 033. Does anyone remember this kid's show? It was called Candle Cove. I must have been about six or seven. I never found reference to it anywhere, so I think it was on a local station around 1971 or 1972. I lived in Ironton at the time. I don't remember which station, but I do remember it was on at a weird time, like 4 p.m. From Mike Painter, 65. It seems really familiar to me. I grew up outside of Ashland and was nine years old in 72. Candle Cove, was it about pirates? I remember a pirate marionette at the mouth of a cave talking to some little girl. From Skyshell 033. Yes, okay, I'm not crazy. I remember Pirate Percy. I was always kind of scared of him. He looked like he was built from parts of other dolls. Real low budget. His head was on an old porcelain baby doll. Looked like an antique that didn't belong on the body. I don't remember what station this was. I don't think it was on WTCF though. From Jaren, 2005. Sorry to resurrect this old thread, but I know exactly what show you mean. I think Candle Cove ran for only a couple months in 71, not 72. I was 12 and I watched it a few times with my brother. It was channel 58, whatever station that was. My mom would let me switch to it after the news. Let me see what I remember. It took place in Candle Cove, and it was about a little girl who imagined herself to be friends with pirates. The pirate ship was called the Laughing Stock, and Pirate Percy wasn't a very good pirate, because he got scared too easily. And there was this Calliope music constantly playing. Don't remember the girl's name, Janice or Jade, or something like that. I think it was Janice. From Skyshell 033. Thank you, Jaren. Memories flooded back when you mentioned the laughing stock in Channel 58. I remember the bow of the ship was a wooden smiling face with its lower jaw submerged. It looked like it was swallowing the sea, and it had an awful Edwin voice and laugh. I especially remember how jarring it was when they switched from the wooden plastic model to the foam puppet version of the head that talked. From Mike Painter, 65. Haha, <laughs> I remember now too. Do you remember this part, Skyshale? You have to go inside. From Skyshell 033. Oh, Mike, I got a chill reading that. Yes, I remember. That's what the ship always told Percy when there was a spooky place he had to go inside, like a cave or a dark room where the treasure was, and the camera would push on Laughingstock's face with each pause. You have to go inside. With his two eyes askew and that flopping foam jaw and the fishing line that opened and closed, ugh, it just looks so cheap and awful. You guys remember the villain? He had a face that was just a handlebar mustache above really tall, narrow teeth. From Kevin Hart. I honestly, honestly thought the villain was Pirate Percy. I was about five when the show was on. Nightmare fuel. From Jarin 2005. That wasn't the villain. The puppet with the mustache? That was the villain's sidekick. Horace Horrible. He had a monocle too, but it was on top of the mustache. I used to think that meant he had only one eye. But yeah, the villain was another marionette. The Skin Taker. I can't believe what they let us watch back then. From Kevin Hart. Jesus H. Christ. The Skin Taker. What kind of a kid show were we watching? 
I seriously could not look at the screen when the skin taker showed up. He just descended out of nowhere on his strings. Just a dirty skeleton wearing that brown top hat and cape? And his glass eyes that were too big for his skull? Christ almighty! From Skyshale033 Wasn't his top hat and cloak all sewn up crazily? Was that supposed to be children's skin? From Mike Painter 65 Yeah, I think so. Remember his mouth didn't open and close? His jaw just slid back and forth. I remember the little girl said, Why does your mouth move like that? And the skin taker didn't look at the girl, but at the camera and said, To grind your skin. From Skyshale 033 I'm so relieved that other people remember this terrible show. I used to have this awful memory. A bad dream I had where the opening jingle ended, the show faded in from black, and all the characters were there. But the camera was just cutting to each of their faces, and they were just screaming. And the puppets and marionettes were flailing spastically, and just all screaming, screaming. But the girl was just moaning and crying like she'd just been through hours of this. I woke up many times from that nightmare. I used to wet the bed whenever I had it. From Kevin Hart. I don't think that was a dream. I remember that. I remember that was an episode. From Skyshell, 033. No, no, no. Not possible. There was no plot or anything. I mean, literally just standing in place, crying and screaming for the whole show. From Kevin Hart. Maybe I'm manufacturing the memory because you just said that, but I swear to God I remember seeing what you described. They just screamed. From Jarin, 2005. Oh god, I remember the little girl Janice. I remember seeing her shake, and the skin taker screaming through his gashing teeth, his jaw careening so widely I thought it would come off its wire hinges. I turned it off, and it was the last time I watched. I ran to tell my brother, and we didn't have the courage to turn it back on. From Mike Painter, 65. I visited my mom today at the nursing home. I asked her about when I was a little kid in the early 70s, when I was 8 or 9 and if she remembered a kid's show, Candle Cove. She said she was surprised I could remember that, and I asked why. And she said, Because I used to think it was so strange. You said I'm going to go watch Candle Cove now, Mom, and then you would just tune the TV to static and just watch Dead Air for 30 minutes. You sure had a big imagination with your little pirate show. I lay in my bed, restless and alone, on a dark and silent night. I toss and turn in my bed, trying to find a comfortable spot. I feel uneasy. Something about tonight just doesn't feel right. I toss and turn until I finally find a comfortable position. I close my eyes, but it doesn't make a difference. It's too dark in my room to see a thing anyways. I guess it takes time for my eyes to adjust to the darkness. I lay there, still silent on a dark and dank night. My body is relaxed, my mind is blank, and I'm ready for some much-needed rest. Instantly, the silence is shattered and my mind fills with fearful thoughts as my startled eyes flash open. Knock, knock. It's almost undoubtedly the sound of a fist on glass, but no, it couldn't be. What would someone's motivation be to wake someone alone in their home? Think logically. If someone wanted to break in, why would they warn me with a knock? They would just break in, making a loud and obvious noise. Or try to be as silent as possible. Why would they knock? Monsters don't exist. I could give myself some peace of mind and simply look out the window. 
but I'm facing the other way and I'm too timid to turn my head, afraid of finding my greatest fears standing outside my window. What could it be though? Maybe a couple birds flew into my window. No, that's too unrealistic. Could a group of kids be running around late at night, knocking on windows to get a few laughs? It's a possibility. Come to think of it, maybe it was my imagination. Maybe I heard the usual creak and my paranoid mind has taken it for a knock. 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 Nope, that definitely wasn't my imagination. Those damn kids are persistent. They don't want to quit until they get that reaction. Maybe some sick, twisted freak is standing outside waiting for me to look so he can smash through and attack me. No, don't think that. Don't get paranoid. Besides, he's outside, I'm inside. Until I hear a shatter, I know I'm safe. Monsters don't exist. Besides, I haven't moved yet. Hopefully those kids will think I'm a heavy sleeper and just leave me alone. Knock. Knock. No, it can't be kids. No kid would wait around this long just to get a reaction from one lonely guy. They just get bored and move along. But what could it be? Why would a serial killer target me of all people? Think logically. Monsters don't exist. Don't get paranoid. They're outside. I'm inside. Until I hear a shatter, I know I'm safe. But if it's not a monster or some sort of killer, what could it be? Just pretend to be asleep and maybe they'll go away. Knock. Knock. Oh god, I can't think of a noise I hate more than that persistent knock. Please go away. Just leave me alone and let me be. There's no hope. It's going to get in here and do sick, horrible things to me. Inhale. Take deep breaths. I can feel my heart pound out of my chest. Just relax. Monsters don't exist. Remember, they're outside, I'm inside. Until I hear a shatter, I know I'm safe. Repeat that. Don't let your fear get the best of you. Just pretend to be asleep. Don't move a muscle. Knock, knock. They're outside, I'm inside. Until I hear a shatter, I know I'm safe. Monsters don't exist. Just pretend to be asleep and pray it'll go away. Knock, knock. They're outside, I'm inside. Until I hear a shatter, I know I'm safe. Frightful tears begin to drip down my face. Monsters don't exist. Monsters don't exist. I begin to whisper to myself. They're outside, I'm inside. Until I hear a shatter, I know I'm safe. They're outside, I'm inside. Until I hear a shatter, I know I'm safe. Knock, knock. I can't take it anymore. I'm gonna go mad listening to these knocks. At least if I see what it is, I'll have peace of mind. Take a deep breath. I repeat to myself one more time. They're outside, I'm inside. Until I hear a shatter, I know I'm safe. I take a few more breaths. My heart is pounding as hard as it's ever pounded at a mile a minute. I slowly turn my head to face the window. My heart sinks into my chest and I'm too afraid to scream or move. I turn my head to find a pale figure with beady black eyes staring through me and into my soul as a horrid grin creeps across its face. It was standing inside the whole time, knocking on my window. So how are you feeling after those stories? Are you too terrified to continue? No one would blame you if you turned it off right now. Cause this next story, oh, one of the creepiest of all time. That's right, this last story on the Best of 1 to 10 show is Squidward Suicide. 
This is also a very special episode for me because in episode 10, I introduced the Horror Fix segment, which is probably one of my favorite segments to do. Unfortunately, there wasn't one on this episode, but at least there will be a rate and review. But let's just let's listen to some scary shit, shall we? This is Squidward Suicide. I just want to start off by saying, if you want an answer at the end, prepare to be disappointed. There just isn't one. I was an intern at Nickelodeon Studios for a year in 2005 for my degree in animation. It wasn't paid, of course. Most internships aren't. But it did have some perks beyond education. To adults, it might not seem like a big one, but most kids at the time would go crazy over it. Now, since I worked directly with the editors and animators, I got to view the new episodes days before they aired. I'll get right to it without giving too many unnecessary details. They had very recently made the Spongebob movie and the entire staff was somewhat sapped of creativity, so it took them a longer time to start up the season. But the delay lasted longer for more upsetting reasons. There was a problem with the Series 4 premiere that set everyone and everything back several months. Me and two other interns were in the editing room along with the lead animators and sound editors for the final cut. We received the copy that was supposed to be Fear of a Krabby Patty. So we gathered around the screen to watch. Now, given that it isn't final yet, animators often put up a mock title card, sort of an inside joke just for us, with phony, oftentimes lewd titles, such as How Sex Doesn't Work, instead of Rockabye Bill Valve, when SpongeBob and Patrick adopt a sea scallop. Nothing particularly funny, but work-related chuckles. So when we saw the title card Squidward Suicide, we didn't think of it more than a morbid joke. One of the interns did a small throat laugh at it. The happy-go-lucky music plays as is normal. The story began with Squidward practicing his clarinet, hitting a few sour notes like normal. We hear SpongeBob laughing outside, and Squidward stops, yelling at him to keep it down as he had a concert that night and needs to practice. SpongeBob says okay and goes to see Sandy with Patrick. The bubble splash screen comes up, and we see the ending of Squidward's concert. This is when things begin to seem off. While playing, a few frames repeat themselves, but the sound doesn't. At this point, the sound is synced up with the animation, so yes, that's not common. But when he stops playing, the sound finishes as if the skip never happened. There's a slight murmuring in the crowd, before they begin to boo him. And not normal cartoon booing, that's common in the show, but you could very clearly hear malice in it. Squidward's in full frame and looks visibly afraid. The shot goes to the crowd with Spongebob in center frame, and he too is booing, very much unlike him. That isn't the oddest thing though. What is odd is that everyone has hyper-realistic eyes, very detailed, clearly not shots of real people's eyes, but something a bit more real than CGI. The pupils were red. Some of us looked at each other, obviously confused. But since we weren't the writers, we didn't question its appeal to children. Yet. The shot goes to Squidward sitting on the edge of his bed, looking very forlorn. The view out of his porthole window is of night sky, so it isn't very long after the concert. The unsettling part is that at this point there's no sound. Literally no sound. Not even the feedback from the speakers in the room. It's as if the speakers were turned off. Though their status showed them working perfectly, he just sat there, blinking, in silence for about 30 seconds. Then he started to sob softly. He put his hands, or his tentacles, 
over his eyes and quite quietly for a full minute more. All the while a sound in the background, very slowly growing, from nothing to barely audible. It sounded like a slight breeze through a forest. The screen slowly begins to zoom in on his face. By slowly, I mean it's only noticeable if you look at ten shots apart side by side. His sobbing gets louder, more full of hurt and anger. The screen then twitches a bit, as if it twists on itself. For a split second, then back to normal. The wind through the trees sound gets slowly louder and more severe, as if a storm is brewing somewhere. The eerie part is that this sound, and Squidward's sobbing, sounded real, as if the sound wasn't coming from the speakers, but as if the speakers were holes, and the sound was coming through them from the other side. As good a sound as the studio likes to have, they don't purchase the equipment to be that good to produce the sound of that quality. Below the sound of wind and sobbing, very faint, something sounded like laughing. It came at odd intervals and never lasted more than a second, so you had a hard time pinning it. We watched the show twice, so pardon me if things sound too specific, but I've had a lot of time to think about them. After 30 seconds of this, the screen blurred and twitched violently, and something flashed over the screen, as if a single frame was replaced. The lead animation editor paused and rewound frame by frame. What we saw was horrible. It was a still photo of a dead child. He couldn't have been more than six. The face was mangled and bloodied, one eye dangling over his upturned face, popped. He was naked down to his underwear, his stomach crudely cut open and his entrails laying beside him. He was laying on some pavement that was probably a road. The most upsetting part was that there was a shadow of the photographer. There was no crime tape, no evidence tags or markers and the angle was completely off for a shot designed to be evidence. It would seem the photographer was the person responsible for the child's death. We were of course mortified, but pressed on, hoping that it was just a sick joke. The screen flipped back to Squidward, still sobbing, louder than before, and half-body in the frame. There was now what appeared to be blood running down his face from his eyes. The blood was also done in hyper-realistic style, looking as if you touched it you'd get blood on your fingers. The wind sounded now as if it were a gale blowing through the forest. There were even snapping sounds of branches. The laughing, a deep baritone, lasting at longer intervals and coming more frequently. After about 20 seconds, the screen again twisted and showed a single frame photo. The editor was reluctant to go back. We all were, but he knew he had to. This time the photo was that of what appeared to be a little girl, no older than the first child. She was laying on her stomach, her barrettes in a pool of blood next to her. Her left eye was too popped out and popped, naked except for her underpants. Her entrails were piled on top of her, above another crude cut along her back. Again the body was on the street and the photographer's shadow was visible, very similar in size and shape to the first. I had to choke back vomit, and one intern, the only female in the room, ran out. The show resumed. About five seconds after the second photo played, Squidward went silent, as did all sound. It was like when the scene started. He put his tentacles down and his eyes were now done in hyper-realism, just like the others at the beginning of the episode. They were bleeding, bloodshot, and pulsating. He just stared at the screen as if watching the viewer. After about ten seconds, he started sobbing, this time not covering his eyes. The sound was piercing and loud. And most fear-inducing of all is that his sobbing was mixed with screams. 
Tears and blood were dripping down his face at a heavy rate. The wind sound came back, and so did the deep voice laughing. This time, the still photo lasted for a good five frames. The animator was able to stop it on the fourth and backed up. This time, the photo was of a boy, about the same age, but this time the scene was different. The entrails were just being pulled out from a stomach wound by a large hand. The right eye popped and dangling, blood trickling down it. The animator proceeded. It was hard to believe, but the next one was different, but we couldn't tell what. He went on to the next, same thing. He then went back to the first and played them quicker, and I just lost it. I vomited on the floor, the animating and sound editors gasping at the screen. The five frames were not as if there were five different photos. They were played out as if they were frames from a video. We saw the hand slowly lift out the guts. We saw the kid's eyes focus on it. We even saw two frames of the kid beginning to blink. The lead sound editor told us to stop. He had to call in the creator to see this. Mr. Hillenberg arrived within 15 minutes. He was confused as to why he was called down there, so the editor just continued the episode. Once the few frames were shown, all screaming, all sound again stopped. Squidward was just staring at the viewer, full frame of the face, for about three seconds. The shot quickly panned out and that deep voice said, Do it. And we see in Squidward's hands a shotgun. He immediately puts the gun in his mouth and pulls the trigger. Realistic blood and brain matter splatters the wall behind him and his bed, and he flies back with the force. The last five seconds of this episode show his body on the bed, on his side, one eye dangling on what's left of his head above the floor, staring blankly at it. Then the episode ends. Mr. Hillenberg is obviously angry at this. He demanded to know what the heck was going on. Most people left the room at this point so it was just a handful of us to watch it again. Viewing the episode twice only served to imprint the entirety of it in my mind and caused me horrible nightmares. I'm sorry I stayed. The only theory we could think of was that the file was edited by someone in the chain from the drawing studio to here. The CTO was called in to analyze when it happened. The analysis of the file did show it was edited over by new material. However, the timestamp of it was a mere 24 seconds before we began viewing it. All equipment involved was examined for foreign software and hardware, as well as glitches, as if the timestamp may have glitched and showed the wrong time. But everything checked out fine. We don't know what happened, and to this day, nobody does. There was an investigation due to the nature of the photos, but nothing came of it. No child seen was identified, and no clues were gathered from the data involved nor physical clues in the photos. I never believed in unexplainable phenomena before, but now that I have something happen and can't prove anything about it beyond anecdotal evidence, I think twice about things. So for this installment of Rate and Review, if you've been following me on Instagram, you'll know that I've been playing the indie horror game called Among the Sleep. So this game was created by Krillbyte Games. I think that, yeah, it's Krillbyte Games. Uh, it's been ported over to the PS4 and Xbox. It was originally just a PC game. And this game you play as a baby 
whose mother has been taken away from him, and then you're kind of trapped in your house trying to, like, solve puzzles, and you're constantly being chased by this demonic black figure, and it is pretty horrifying. But the first half of the game that I played... Oh, spoiler alert, if you were going to play this game. should probably say that. But the first half of this game, I, I was kind of into it, but I wasn't really scared because I didn't even know that anything could kill me. Because I did not, like, the screen would get all fuzzy when I saw this certain figure, but it never caught me, Because even though I wasn't really trying to escape it. And I just never died, so I was like, oh, this game's not even scary. It's not too, it's, it's nothing. But then I put it down, came back the next day, and then I got caught by this giant creepy-ass figure once that's constantly trying to chase you, and it just terrified me for the rest of the game. Like, my heart was beating whenever it would come close, and you could, like barely run away from it because you're a baby you have no speed you're just an infant but that's not even the scariest part of this game like it's a pretty short game pretty quick lots of fun but it really tackles some deep and dark real things that some children have to go through with alcoholism in their parents because after you play through the game you solve all these puzzles trying to just get to your mom the one thing that should be safe for you being with your parents you find out that this creepy figure that's been chasing you the entire time is your mom because she's I, I initially thought she was like had postpartum depression or something but I read up about it and she's actually just a stone-cold alcoholic, and she's abusive towards you, and you're a baby. So what the hell's wrong with her? But luckily, your dad comes at the end and saves you. So tackles some kind of deep, dark stuff, but it was a very satisfying ending to a game that was a lot of fun and pretty creepy. Just, uh, it was a nice, refreshing change of pace. I would definitely recommend this game, but I would only buy it if it was on sale. I, in fact, did buy it on sale for like 7 bucks on the PlayStation Network, but it's normally 14 so wait for it to go on sale. Uh, if I was going to give it a rating out of 10, I'd probably go with uh, about a 6.8. So not quite a 7, but well above a 6. So it was, it was enjoyable. It's not the best game I've ever played, but it was certainly not the worst. So that does it for this episode of Past the Time Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we're going to be getting some more best of shows going to change up the music on the ones that I didn't like, going to edit them a bit tighter together so that they're just more enjoyable for you to listen to. And, yeah, that does it for this episode. Uh, like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Podcast. Follow us on Instagram at Podcast and on Twitter at Podcast. strangely enough, because I'm an idiot and I should have just picked Podcast. Yeah, so like us on iTunes, give us a good rating, and I'll see you next time. Try not to have too many nightmares, my friends.